Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how technology, consumerism, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. This podcast is sponsored by HealthNext, the enterprise class virtual care platform from Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. Hello again, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to welcome to the podcast Michael Bouton. He's the Chief Medical Information Officer, the CMIO for the New York City Hospital and Health. The New York City H&H, as it's called. Michael, thank you for setting aside the time and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patty. So let's get started. Would you maybe like to tell us a little bit about your organization and your role within the organization? Sure. So I'm part of New York City Health and Hospitals, or H&H for short. We are the nation's largest public health system. We have 11 acute care facilities, a long-term care facility, a couple SNFs, And then we also have over 60 clinics in all five boroughs across the city. And I'm the Enterprise Chief Medical Information Officer. I'm also a practicing emergency medicine doc at Harlem Hospital, which is one of our hospitals in the system. Awesome. Thank you for that that background. So, Mike, New York has been one of the hardest hit by the pandemic, and uh, uh, we've all seen the... uh, numbers and everything. Tell us a little bit about yeah. about some of the changes that your organization has gone through in responding to the pandemic over the last few months. Yeah, the pandemic did a bunch of things, one of which is it accelerated plans years. It accelerated some of our digital transformation. It brought us to a place where I thought we might be two years from now, and we had to get there in three or four months during the pandemic. Wow. So a couple of good examples is we, you know, in our ICUs and our EDs, we have vital sign monitors that are linked in to Epic. So vital sign monitor can be on the patient. It transmits to a central station. The nurse at the central station can monitor the patient. And then that information automatically kicks into our electronic medical record. So it's a, it's a great time saver for the nursing staff. And it also allows them to monitor, I think, up to like 36 patients at, sitting at a station. So that's great. And in our EDs and our ICUs, we've had that since we went live with our new electronic medical records the past few years. However, on our medical floors, our surgical floors, a lot of other units in our inpatient side of our hospital, we did not have that ability. And one thing that became clear very early on in the pandemic was that the COVID patients were going to require continuous pulse ox symmetry. We were sending everybody home that had a pulse ox uh, 95% or greater, which I think is appropriate critical practice. But that means if you were getting admitted to our hospital, basically you are hypoxic. And these patients would sometimes deteriorate quickly. So they really required continuous pulse ox symmetry. So we did a whole bunch of things. You know, telemetry devices can do not just the rhythm strip, but they can also do pulse ox. And then we went out and bought hundreds upon hundreds of vital sign machines that could do this continuous pulse ox symmetry. So our medical floors were transformed in the matter of about 
six weeks from places where our nursing staff would go bed to bed taking vitals to not having to do that. And that was that was part of our long term plan. That's something that I had wanted to do for the past year. But from funding, from time and effort and where we were going to prioritize, that came that shot up very high on our list. Another example that I'm sure we'll get to later is our telehealth, our ambulatory video visits. That's something that we had started with in a non-integrated fashion, meaning we would basically send a link to a patient and, you know, and they could click on it and come in. And it was very sparingly used. And that whole process has gotten accelerated. There was a point in, for us, the height of the pandemic was in April, March, late March, early April. And we were doing almost all of our visits either via telephone or via video. And that was a transformation that we might, we never fully expected to go almost all of our visits. We didn't expect the in-person place, uh, in-person part of our uh, ambulatory side to go away entirely. And it it, it did, it it dropped to almost nothing for a couple months in there. Yeah, we will come back and unpack the telehealth uh, discussion shortly, but I just want to spend a minute more on the vital signs, the telemetry, the pulse ox uh, problem yeah. that you had to very quickly solve. So I imagine that if you had to go out and buy hundreds of machines, integrate them, you know, reorganize your processes, train everybody and so on, that must have been a gigantic lift for an organization as big as yours. How do you manage it? It was a gigantic lift. We developed a dedicated team and we prioritized. What we had been working on previously was integrating some of our procedural areas. So our GI suites weren't all fully integrated. So it was a pretty easy decision. We took the teams that were doing that and we focused them on our medical floors. We, We took anybody that was able to do this integration work and we made this our enterprise's number one priority. And we went from acute care center to acute care center outfitting the most, the site CMIO, CMO, CNO. So like the site leadership So what, from one of our 11 acute cares would tell us which units they wanted integrated first. And we would come in and in about a day, we'd get that whole unit integrated. We would do it off the floor. So you weren't exposing the IT staff to the uh, COVID patients on the floor. The devices would be brought up. We'd stay there to troubleshoot and we'd move on to the next facility the next day. Now, I got to tell you, what was training, you you mentioned training, that was difficult because training staff in the best of times takes time Mm -hmm. and there's some troubleshooting, there's a learning curve and doing so in the middle of a pandemic when everybody is already stressed, everybody already feels like they have too much work because they did. We, We had a lot, we had a lot of COVID patients and it was stressful. So trying to train people in that environment was hard. The thing that we had going in our favor was that this really was a time saver for the staff. So people that saw the benefit invested the time up front. But getting them to pay attention for that first couple minutes, that was challenging. And frankly, that is why we're continuing the training at this point. No one knows if New York's going to get a second wave, but we certainly are preparing as if we are going to. So we have, you know, not every single bed in our hospital is capable of continuous monitoring at this point, but we continue to expand our number of beds that can do this. And really, I think what's more important than adding those devices is that training piece. It's getting our nursing staff 
are PCAs, which are um, our patient care associates. They're like the med- I think they're referred to like MAs at a lot of other institutions. Getting them able to do this is what we are working on right now. It's really where the rubber meets the road. Right. There's a, you know, I heard someone say that 80% of these kinds of programs, even if they're technology programs, is really about the people. About 15% is about process, and the remaining 5% is the tech. You know, the tech is the easy part. It's everything else that surrounds it and putting it in place and making it work seamlessly. That's where the, that's where the lift is. And that's kind of what's coming through from, from your comments as well. So shifting to, let's talk about telehealth. Now, obviously, in the wake of the pandemic, uh, telehealth was forced upon us. And prior to the pandemic, we had all been making progress and every healthcare institution in the country was adopting telehealth to some degree and somewhere a little further ahead than the others, but there was some progress. At a broad level, in the first few weeks of the pandemic, practically every institution that had a telehealth capability kind of blew through the previous year's total numbers within the first couple of weeks in terms of just the total visits that they had to manage to the telehealth platforms. Now, that was all very emergency-driven because of the pandemic. But three months, four months in, what are some of the challenges that you are now having to address, you know, having had to put in and accelerate telehealth adoption? What are some of the challenges that you've had to address? And, you know, can you talk about one or two learnings? So this is also relevant to what you uh, were saying before, the vital sign monitors. It's, this is not an IT project. Telehealth is not an IT project. It's a, it's a clinical transformation, right? So this is not just rolling out the technology and say, hey, you can do a video visit with a patient now. Yeah. It's all of the little workflow things that you didn't, I got to tell you, you just got to pay attention to. And I got to tell early on, I didn't fully appreciate so a couple of things that I've seen be successful with others that we're implementing now are, they sound small, but I think they're really important to the user experience. When I say user, I do mean the patient and the provider experience. It's virtual rooming. So I remember when I started working at New York City Health and Hospitals, I don't know, like a decade ago, sometimes I would have to go out to the waiting room to call my next patient. Now, we realized very early on that that was entirely inefficient, and we took that responsibility away from the doctor so we could work at the top of our license. But when we rolled out the video visits, we basically did the exact same thing. Is We had the doctor initiating the call with the patient. What makes more sense, in my opinion, is having really anybody else. If you have a medical assistant, you can have that or a registration cloud staff. You can have them initiate the call with the patient. And if they're having trouble, if the patient's having trouble getting on, it should be the MA that calls the patient, not necessarily the doctor. Yeah. This wouldn't be, this, is, this isn't different than if I was the one going outside to call my patient from the waiting room and they weren't there having to, you know, wait three times and go back out a couple of days and go back out. It would be a waste of my time. But if you can have somebody else do that and you can have your provider seeing another patient or finishing charting on somebody else, it's just a better use of resources. And, we, and the thing is, we have those resources because we are in-person capacity or in-person volume went down. So we had excess capacity of those ancillary staff. So it's really about leveraging those. And another ancillary staff that's really critical for New York City Health and Hospitals, and I know is uh, important to a lot of organizations, is interpreters. How do you get an interpreter on the video visits? It's something like 30% of our patient population 
that is not English speaking primarily. So we that was absolutely needed. So leveraging our in-house interpreters, it's not just the video interpreters that we can call online, which there was problems integrating with those and we're working diligently at that. But it's about using the resources you already have on site to help you with the technology. And that's that's where we found the most success in this medium term period. Now, related question, right? And this question probably is relevant in the context of the uh, vital signs monitors as well that you talked about. Ultimately, you have to integrate the data that is coming off of your backend systems or off of the devices that you put in front of patients or caregivers, as the case may be. That's kind of your world, I, I imagine, in many ways, yeah. CMIO. So talk to us a little bit, you know, help us understand the data integration challenges. We know that there are several and they've been around since before the pandemic, but what new challenges did it create for you and what new opportunities did it create as you really transform the way you deliver care and interact with patients? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? I think that would be interesting for our listeners. Sure. The challenges, when you're talking about the data flowing in from the monitors, if the nurse is going bed to bed and they write down the vital signs and they come back over to the system and they type it in, it's pretty, you know, there might be a manual input of data wrong, meaning that they might actually just type it in incorrectly. But otherwise, you know that data is pretty accurate. If all they're being asked to do is verify that the information coming from the monitor is correct, they being human, and this happens to everybody, they might just say, yep, that looks right. And they'll, you know, the pulse ox might be reading zero because it's, or, you know, 70-something percent because it's not attached. It's, you know, it's, the patient got up to go to the bathroom. So you have, you do have spurious data entering the system, which is problematic. I got to tell you, I did not see as much of that as I thought. I think our nursing staff were, there was a heightened level of awareness for our sick patients and our sick patients are the ones that were getting these continuous vital sign monitors. So while certainly it's something to watch out for, didn't turn out to be a major problem for us. The opportunity, which is the other side of this, is that we put in a machine learning algorithm that took a whole host of factors. So a patient's age, patient's diagnosis, their vital signs that were coming directly from these machines, their lab values, and it actually was able to predict if the patient was going to deteriorate, meaning get intubated, be transferred to the ICU, or die in the next 24 hours. And using this, as we use that as our early warning system to bring more clinical attention to the bedside. And that, that was a major win for us. Our staff liked that. And in the face of an increased patient volume, we needed that more than ever. So this is a great uh, example from a clinical standpoint. So you're integrating the data, you're trying to do it real time, you're running a machine learning algorithm on it that can provide you with some predictive values that help you target the patients most at risk for deterioration and intervene in a timely manner and save lives. Great example. What about uh, the telehealth side of it? Uh, How did you integrate the data? There's an administrative side of it, for instance. You you mentioned that you used to send out a link, people wouldn't get on and do a video call. How would you link it back to your you know, billing system, as an example, make sure that you're capturing the encounters and the billing for it appropriately. And then, of course, doing it all in a HIPAA-compliant way so that there's, you know, privacy and everything is taken care of. Can you talk a little bit about the access side of it? 
So, and I think we're speaking specifically about video visits here, but I think a related issue would be the incorporation of digital vital sign or digital information coming from the patient that's not a video visit. So I'll hit on that in a second. But in relation to the video, we had the patients log in through their portal primarily. Now we had a couple different ways that we did this. And, you know, I think during the pandemic, we rolled out, I'm somebody who likes to roll out an enterprise solution get it adopted widely and have really a single way of doing business, that wasn't really a possibility during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We had to go, we had to use a bunch of different forms of technology to meet our various use cases. So speaking specifically about ambulatory scheduled visits, we use our patient portal, which they already had an app on their phone or a percentage of our patients already had an app on their phone. And if you didn't have that app on your phone, we required that you put it on so you can have a video visit with us. Now, we people that weren't able to do that, we provided another means of uh, coming in, but that was that was our standard way of doing business. And then from a billing perspective on that, what we realized that once again, this is not fully my area of expertise, but we did telephone visits and we did video visits. And my understanding is that video visits were reimbursing about three times the rate of telephone visits. So there was an economic push yeah. to move towards video visits. And I think there is a clinical advantage of a video visit. The question is how much advantage is it? You know, I clearly want to be able to see my patient, you know, during physical exam, just eyeballing your patient has a lot of value. You get a sense of their respiratory rate, but we had, a, we had both a clinical and a financial push to move towards video visits. Yeah. I was also going to ask you about your uh, inpatient virtual care and tele-ICUs and stuff like that. Maybe you could touch on that too. Yeah, definitely. For us, we were a little bit further ahead of that with that before the pandemic. We had had more experience. And I think anything that you, you had, some, it, it's easier to scale something you've already had some work with than rolling out something entirely new. I think I mean, that's, that's true of everyone with every project I've ever yeah. done. And this was really no different. So yeah, we did Tele, we did a tele ICU. We made it easier for folks to log in to the electronic medical record from home and actually see the views of their patients that would be most beneficial to them, and specifically in this case, to the intensivist. And then gave the ability for a video interaction. Now, I think video interactions are very helpful with ICU, and we clearly did that. But interestingly, the video component in the ICU specifically. When I talked to my intensivist, it was valuable, but not nearly as valuable as I thought because so much of that data was already in the system. And ICU patients have such high, there's such a rich amount of data in the system. You have your event settings, you have your vital signs, you have your labs, you have your nursing notes. Yeah. You have so much available in the system already that you know you don't need to look at the vent if the vent data is already in your electronic medical record. Interesting. So back to back to telehealth, and I want to touch on one more thing. Uh, this is uh, remote monitoring, right? Again, this is part of your world. You are taking care of your patients who are out there with chronic conditions who are not necessarily coming into the hospital. You're tracking them through uh, devices and uh, wearables and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about how any of that changed and uh, where do you see that heading in the wake of the pandemic? This is such a rich area to move into. I think there's a huge amount of benefit here. I, I think most of your listeners will be enthusiastic for this. I, some of the specific projects that we worked on are 
taking, if you have an implantable defibrillator, right? And you're at home or you have an AICD and you're at home, you don't necessarily want to bring those patients into your hospital to get that device interrogated. Sure, if you're sick and you need to come in during the pandemic, we want to take care of you, we're there to take care of you. But if we could do that remotely and if we could get that information from your device without you having to physically come in, well, that's that's a clear-cut win. So we did a lot of projects like that. Now, the other very clear use cases for this are, you know, the tracking of your diabetic patients, the tracking mm-hmm. of your hypertension patients. Yeah. And to me, I think we're never, I don't think, nobody wants to get rid of the, the, the in-person experience altogether. I think there's a real value in doctor-patient relationship, the face-to-face interaction. I think laying hands on the patient, even if it's not the most clinically beneficial, is a therapeutic advantage. And so um, we're not looking to get rid of that. But, you know, if I'm seeing one of my diabetic patients, you know, four times a year, but now all of a sudden I can look at their glucometer on a weekly basis and see how they're doing and have a machine learning algorithm sitting in the background notifying me when things start to not look so great. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's a clear cut win. And, and we're there. This is not something that, you know, we need more technology for. We are now at the point where we can do that. And it's about developing those workflows. It's about developing those workflows. And then what are you going to, after you flag a patient, you're like, great, this patient's at high risk, but then what do you do? Is a phone call enough? Do you need to schedule, you know, for the diabetic, do you need to schedule them with the nutritionist? Do you need to look at their labs? And I think, you know, I'm sorry, do they need to come in and get more lab work? And and I yeah. think we don't, we're not, I have yet to see a whole lot of really rigorous studies on when X happens, this is the intervention that you should do that is clinically proven. And I think that's really fertile ground for research really right yeah. now. Well, the hypothesis here is already being validated through marketplace activity. We just saw the merger of two big companies in this space, you know, Nivongo and Teladoc. One is in the in the virtual concert, you know, primarily in the virtual concert space, and the other one is in the remote monitoring space and uh, creating a gigantic entity, which kind of is a validation for the opportunity in this area. At the same time, I want to kind of look, explore the contrarian view a little bit as well. The recent data seems to indicate that telehealth visits have dropped off a little, maybe because they swung too much to one side in the wake of the pandemic. And to your point earlier, nothing replaces in-person care. And for certain kinds of needs, oncology as an example, you know, it's hard to kind of manage the condition entirely remotely. And so we are seeing some of that swing back. And then there are other issues related to access for rural or indigent populations that may not have you know, either broadband access or yep. may not have devices, the smartphones and things where they can you know, jump on into a video console. Where do you think we are headed in terms of an equilibrium? Maybe from the point of view of your world and H&H, where do you see the equilibrium and what could be what could be the roadblocks we have to overcome in order to really realize the full potential of telehealth and remote care models? I think it will be specialty specific, meaning how much is in person and how much is remote. When I think about this, if I'm going in for to see my orthopedist because my knee hurts, there's going to be a lot of manipulation of my knee. And I think they're going to really need to feel it and look at it. And I think you'd be able to do maybe less of that on a video visit. Not none, but but less. If you're going to be seeing your primary care doctor to manage your hypertension and you're, you know, coming in every 
four months because you're you know, having trouble with it. Well, you know, some of those visits can be done remotely. And I think you could be done remotely without losing a whole lot. You know, I think that annual in-person physical is also going to be generational to a certain extent. I, when I have the ability now to do video visits and I can, instead of taking a half a day off of work, I can hop out for 20 minutes on a call and then go right back to work. That That's what I personally is going to want to do yeah. as a patient for the foreseeable future. But if I need to go in and get blood work done anyway, well, no, I'd rather just do the visit in person. Cause I don't, I don't, I would like to, I'd like to see my doctor. So it's a question of the opportunity cost like what the patient is giving up. If you have to come in anyway to get a scope done or, you know, like you have an, EN, you have an ENT and they're going to be doing, like dropping in a scope, well, then no, of course. I would, I'd rather come in and see my patient, get my blood work done, or see my provider, get my blood work done all at the same time. But for those remote, those visits that are amenable to a remote interaction that don't require physical contact, I think a lot of those are going to go away. And where this settles out, Patty, I have no idea. If we switched to 90% video during the pandemic, and let's just say we were 100% in person before, where it actually lands is anyone's guess. My personal guess here is we're going to see maybe 20, 25% of our visits and on a video basis, when the world, I, I'm going to say, goes back to normal. But after we get a vaccine and people feel pretty safe going back to their normal life, we're going to see a tremendous increase in our video visits. We're going to see a tremendous increase in our video visits compared to our baseline of six months ago. But I don't yet see it being the dominant trend. But what we, I think what we will see is more opportunities for a low intensity care interactions. So it's just, hey, what happened with your, I saw your blood glucose hit 400 today. What, what happened? I could see that like a social worker reaching out. So that's not replacing the doctor's visit, but I think it would increase the quality of care. Yeah, I think whatever the next normal, as they're calling it, uh, is going to look like. Again, I kind of agree with you. I think we are going to see the needle shift towards virtual care models for many types of care, but then it's specialty dependent. I would imagine that more of ambulatory care and more chronic care is going to be amenable to virtual care models than uh, procedures and things like that, obviously, for which you have a comment, but even for certain kinds of care, uh, to your point, to see an orthopedist or for oncology, as examples. We're coming up to the end of our time uh, here, uh, Mike, and there's so much that, uh, you know, so much more that I'd like to discuss. But I want to leave you with one more question, which is, as they say, you know, never waste a crisis. And COVID-19 is definitely a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. Where do you see the biggest opportunity in your world as a CMIO of uh, New York City h and Where do you see the biggest opportunity arising from this crisis? So we finished, we're a pretty large system. So we, our implementation of our new electronic medical records spanned a few years. And we finished in March. So we put in our long-term care facility in March, right before the pandemic really wow. started for us. Yeah, it was great. It was, it really was great timing. What we used this crisis for was to act as a system, meaning we had system level data that we just didn't have before. When we compared the capacity, the bed capacity at one hospital towards another, we were really comparing apples to apples. This allowed us to transfer patients from the hardest hit hospitals to the less hard hit hospitals. 
and really have a fair basis of comparison for and why we were why we were doing so. And this this improved patient care. I, I think this frankly, I think this saves lives. Because if you had a hospital that was way over capacity, we could get them out somewhere else. And the other the receiving hospital had all of their, you know, they had all their data from, from our other hospitals, which was a huge benefit to our system and ease the transfer process. But what I'm saying about acting as a system, the literature of the COVID pandemic changed at a dizzying pace. So was hydroxychloroquine good or was it bad? I, there was a time where people thought it could actually do something positively. And, you know, I think that's, that's changed. But there are things that have been proven very effective. So like dexamethasone, it's, we, have a, we have a randomized trial showing that it works. So we, in our order sets, as soon as those trials came out, we added in dexamethasone. And you know, there's a million different examples just like this. But when we made those changes, we weren't making those changes at one of our hospitals. We made those changes at every single hospital. And the reason it was so easy to do for us is that we only have one order set for this. So we, we have a, it drove us towards an enterprise standard, an enterprise way of doing business. When we put in the vital sign monitors, we didn't, all 11 of our hospitals weren't buying their own vital sign monitors. We were buying them for them. So we already had a, a clear path to integration. So um, you know, there's these examples and so many more, but we got to act like a system that really came together and we were able to achieve more. And I think that's, that was, that's the takeaway for our organization, that standardization allowed us to do more and deliver a better product to our patients and to our, to our hospitals. Better experience overall. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. I think that is a fantastic takeaway. Mike, uh, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. We've run out of time for our podcast, but it was such a pleasure having you on and uh, look forward to following all your uh, work at NYCHNH and all the very best to you and your team. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions.